So we're in a series called How to Be Brave, and we're looking at, at how to take these, these steps uh, and these moments of everyday bravery, how to do these things with boldness and, and conviction and trust God uh, through, through all of the opportunities we have to be brave. And we've been studying, like I said, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, so today I want to talk to you on, on the topic, it's already written. It's already written. If you've taken notes, you can put that at the top. Um, we're going to actually look at the same two verses in Philippians that we looked at last week, but I want to uh, make, a, make a minor change. We're going to go from the NIV, which we normally read in, and, and we're going to go to the New King James Version today because it'll give us a chance to, to look at these verses with fresh eyes and, and also maybe a little bit different perspective. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, we talked about last week, says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Last week it, it said, think on such things. New King James says, meditate on these things. Verse 9 says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So in other words, last week we talked about hold that thought. If you weren't here, I, I encourage you to check out the podcast. But the importance of, of finding the right thoughts and grabbing hold of those right thoughts, of fixing hold of those thoughts, and, and that many times we'll have the wrong thoughts, that all of us have those wrong thoughts come into our mind, and we need to hold those too. Second Corinthians talks about taking them captive and grabbing a hold of them, that being forceful with those thoughts, not just letting them kick around and, and run whatever race they want to in our mind. All that's super important, but, but Paul says even beyond that, now that you have the right thoughts, it's going to be important for you to do the right things. You see, uh, the, the Bible says that as a man thinks, so he is. And so having those right thoughts is going to determine the steps that we take. So now he says, do the right things. And if you put that verse 9 back up there for me. Um, and then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. In, in other words, if you have God, you have peace. If you have God, you have joy. If you have God, you have courage. And you may say, man, Pastor Troy, I am just not a courageous person. I'm just not somebody who's ever been that bold. I've never been one to put myself out there. Here's the truth. If you're a Christian, you have the courage of God inside of you, and so you are a sleeping giant. You are somebody who has not yet tapped into the boldness and the bravery that lives in you, but you have the ability to be brave. You have the ability to walk in courage because the God of courage, the God of boldness, the God of victory lives in you. Going back to verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, things that are noble, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, whatever things are of good report. Everybody say good report. So whatever things are of good report. I love that phrase. I love that the New King James phrases it that way. Do, do you have a good report? Have you got a good report this morning? You see, we live in a world that consists of a lot of bad news, don't we? Man, you, you can't get on social media, you can't turn on the news, you can't be around stuff that's going on without hearing a lot of bad news. And here's what I believe. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ, not just city church, but the big church, the capital C church, should be full of good report. That we should be full of faith, that we should be full of people who trust God in big things, even in the midst of a world full of bad news. If you got your Bible, flip over to the book of Psalm, chapter 112. I want to look at Psalm 112. We're going to study three verses there this morning, chapter six, verse 6 through verse 8. And, and I love the, the things that the psalmist says. I think they're actually kind of crazy, but I want them in my life. Chapter 6 says, surely the righteous, uh, if you're a Christian, that's you, by the way. 
Your righteousness is not determined by your actions. The Bible says that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. In other words, you have what's called imputed righteousness. His righteousness has been credited to your account. So you are the righteous. In fact, look at the person next to you and say, that's you. You're the righteous. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. There's a stability for the righteous. There's a foundation for the righteous. I'm built on more than just my emotions, on more than just my feelings. As a Christian, my life is based on something secure, on something firm. He says they will be remembered forever. I love that. We, we, We were at this conference this week, and one of the things they did is they honored some ministers who passed away in the past year. Uh, and one of the things that, that the guy said that I love so much, he said, inheritance is what you leave for your kids. But he said, legacy is what you leave in them. Psalm 112, verse 6 says, the righteous will be remembered forever. Why? Because you left a legacy. You left something in your kids. And I don't know how much you'll get to leave for your kids. I don't know how much we'll leave for our kids. But I guarantee you we're going to leave something in them. There's going to be a legacy in our kids. There's going to be some faith in our kids. Verse 7, he says, they, they who? They the righteous will have no fear. Everybody say no fear. No fear. I was a 90s kid, right? I, I went to, to school in the 90s. And when I was in school, one of, one of the real popular T-shirt trends in the middle of the 90s was that they had no fear shirts. Anybody remember no fear shirts? Am I the only one? A couple people remember the no fear shirts, all right? So, so I was a Christian kid. And in the 90s, we didn't have Christian T-shirts. We had Christian T-shirts that mimicked secular T-shirts. So I had a shirt that was K-N-O-W, fear. And it was like about the wrath of God or like hell or something like real in your face. And I went to public school and did not get my butt kicked by the grace of Jesus in my no fear shirt uh real in, in your, it was like black with like a fluorescent like a neon green like skull on it no fear it's like wow how did i survive praise you jesus uh, he says that the righteous will have no fear no fear of what no fear of bad news their hearts are steadfast trusting in the lord isn't that kind of hard to believe that you could be at a place in your walk with god that you have no fear of bad news What a statement. What a promise. What a declaration. Then he says their hearts are secure. So first we see that that, that they're solid. Then we see that they're steadfast. Now we see they're secure. Three S's. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. He says it again. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. Say it's already written. Verse 7, my favorite verse in this little passage here. Doesn't even seem possible. It says they will have no fear. Of bad news. I think a lot of people are weakened, even Christians are weakened, not by bad news that we receive, but by the fear of bad news that we could receive. Um, lots of bad things have happened uh, in, in the history of our church when pastors have gone out of town. It's kind of a running joke. Uh, but, but, man, Pastor Jason, who started the church, there were some things that happened a couple times. And he was like, man, I don't ever want to go out of town again. Something always goes wrong. And then it happened for Pastor Ricky, the next pastor. And, and in the five years we've been pastors, we've seen some of that. In fact, man, sometimes it's hard for us to go out of town because the first time we ever went out of town was, was our honeymoon. Right? We went and got married, and then we went out of town. And on our honeymoon, two things happened. One uh, somebody, a church member passed away. Um, and, and that's a rare thing. Some churches, that's pretty common because you have a, like, like an older demographic. We've always had a, a younger demographic. We don't have people passing away very frequently at City Church. 
And we had a church member pass away. In fact, the five years I've been pastor, I've only had to do three funerals, and none of those were for church members. By God's grace, we haven't had anybody die. It's a good church to be a part of. Amen? Uh, You want to stay alive, come to City Church. Just kidding. I can't promise you that. Uh, But but we got a good solid five-year track record. Uh, but, but, man, this was how it started in our marriage. We went out of town, and, and somebody passed away. Not only did somebody pass away, we got another phone call. My brother went to jail on our honeymoon. Not on our honeymoon. While we were on our honeymoon, my brother went to jail. Um, and, and so sometimes, man, we go out of town, and I'm, like, nervous when the phone rings. Man, well, what's going to happen? And, and so I have a fear sometimes of bad news. It's not healthy. It's not from God. I'm just being honest and transparent. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to us today, right? Like, we're, we're going to get to a place where we have no fear of bad news. Maybe for you, it doesn't look like, hey, a bad phone call when I go out of town. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe it's when your, your spouse says something like this, like, hey, we need to talk. Whew, how'd that feel? Your heart just start racing right there. Oh, man, we need to talk. That Nothing usually good comes after we need to talk. Maybe for, for some younger people, maybe for you, it's report cards come out on Thursday. Brace yourself, right? Like, why? Because you just saw your next three months of your social life out the window. Uh, now, maybe, maybe you're a good student, and you're like, yes, report cards come out on Thursday. But, but for most of us, that doesn't hold necessarily good news, right? So the, there's some fear that comes with report cards come out on Thursday. How about this one? How about the boss wants to talk to you? Mm. Man, that's scary, isn't it? You know, a lot of times you can have good conversations with your boss. The boss might want to talk to you to give you a, a raise or a good evaluation. The boss might want to talk to you to give you a promotion. But where does our mind go first of all? Right? Our, our thoughts can carry us to negative places. And so we, we have fear of bad news. If you're a parent of a teenager and your kid's out after 10 p.m. anytime the phone rings. Now, now, when I was a teenager, it was different because not only did we not have cell phones when I was a teenager, but I'm so old, we didn't even have call ID. So if the phone rang, mom and dad, they didn't even know if it was me on the other line or the cops on the other line or, or what's going on. They just, you know how we had to screen phone calls back then? You let it go to the answering machine. We even had voicemail. We had an answering machine. And you had to listen. What voice came on the answering machine? Fear of bad news can be so gripping, can't it? Man, here's the first thing I want to point out to you. And let me say this first, actually, that that Paul says in the New Testament, think on things of good report. The psalmist says in the Old Testament that the righteous will have no fear of bad news. How do we get there? Well, write this down. The first thing I want you to see is the report that you believe is much more powerful than the news that you receive. The report you believe is where the power is, not in the news that you receive. When I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, and, and I had two jobs. One of them you can probably name. I worked at Taco Bell, and I've talked a lot about making burritos and chalupas and all kinds of delicious Mexicans or semi-Mexican treats. Um, but I had another job I, I, that I don't talk about as much, probably because I'm embarrassed about the name. But I worked at a place called Bubba's Fun Park. Yes, yes, I did. Bubba's Fun Park. Uh, and Bubba's Fun Park was a, was a batting cage. We had a laser tag. We had an indoor, like, uh, arcade. And then we had, like, like, you know the playground at McDonald's for kids? We had that on steroids. Like, like five times bigger than that, we had big old ball pit and, and all this kind of stuff. It was a really fun place to work. Uh, actually, one of the guys from my church owned it, and so that kind of opened the door for me. And, and I worked there a couple nights a week at Bubba's Fun Park. And so when I was a senior, we, we had a newspaper. I, I went to high school in a little town called Forest City, North Carolina. And in Forest City, North Carolina, we had a newspaper called the Daily Courier. And so the, I got a call from a reporter 
from the Daily Courier, and he said, hey, I, I'd love to come out to, to your workplace. I, I found out that you work at Bubba's. Uh, I'd love to come out there and interview you and may maybe take some pictures. I'm doing a report on, on young people, on high school students who work while they go to school. Could, could I feature you? I'm like, Psh, I love attention. Yes, you can. Right? Like, I will take this. I was thrilled. They, they took pictures of me, like, in the batting cage, like, mean mugging with my batting stance, looking real cool. And they had me up on top of one of the tubes that the kids crawled through and, like, man, risking my life up there. And, and I was like, this is awesome. Uh, and so, so they told me, he said, man, I'm, I'm actually doing a report on two people. I'm doing you and then I'm doing a report on a girl who goes to RS Central High School, which is our rival high school. And she worked for a paralegal. He said, and so I'm, I'm going to feature both of you guys. I was like, awesome. So a, a week or so later, the report comes out, and I've got a big, like, 8 by 10 photo of me, front page in the Daily Courier, like, best day of my life, right? Um, it was awesome. I, I was thrilled. I loved it. My mom, on the other hand, did not. You would think it would be a big moment for my mom, right? Like, I thought she was going to be proud and excited. But you see, you go into the article, and he had asked me a lot of questions about why I worked there what it was like to work there, what was I going to do after I got done. And so I told him, hey, I'm going to Bible college. I feel like I'm called to be a pastor. I'm going to go in the ministry. These are the steps that I have. So right now I'm working at Bubba's for the same reason most people work somewhere when they're in high school. I'm trying to make some spending money and paying my car insurance, you know, and any tickets I might acquire. I probably didn't tell him about that. But those were the reasons why I was working at Bubba's, right, just to have some spending money just to, to, to get ready before I went to college. Well, that was fine. He, he, he included all of that and how much fun I had and how much I, I enjoyed what I did. But then he contrasted that with this girl. You see, this girl worked for a paralegal because she wanted to be a lawyer. And then she wanted to go into politics. And so she had her whole career lined up. She had her whole plan lined up. And she was working to strategically position herself for what was going to come 20 years down the road. I was working to make some spending money so I could go buy McDonald's, Right? And, and so these two different messages come out in the article. He doesn't mention anything about I'm going to be in the ministry, or I'm going to be a pastor, or I'm going to Bible college. So, so my mom looks at this. My mom, the first person who ever told me I would be called into ministry, the person that I've lived with for 17 and a half, 18 years by this point in time, knows me better than just about anybody else on planet Earth. My mom looks at this article, and she decides that I'm not serious enough about my future. She believed the report. Now, did the article bother me? Not at all. My picture was on the newspaper. I was famous in Forest City. Like 37 people read that article, man. I'm big time. I loved it. I didn't care that I didn't talk about my future or my goals or what, where I was going. I thought it would have been cool if they would have shared. Man, I'm going to be in ministry, but whatever. I wasn't upset about it. Why? Because I know me. I knew who I was. I knew my identity. I knew, I said, Mom, I got a 4.2 GPA. I was voted most likely to succeed in my senior class. You think I'm not serious about my future? I'm going to be a pastor. You know me. But you see, my mom was distraught because, not because of the news, not because of the truth. She was distraught because of the report that she believed. And one person was shaken by the bad report. Somebody else wasn't affected by the bad report at all. Because I found strength not in the report. I knew who I was. I knew what, what my calling was. I knew who my God was. I knew what was going to happen in my future. And I wonder how many of us get distraught because we believe the wrong report. It's not the news that we receive. It's our perception of the report. It's the way that we take it and the way that we receive it that determines what we're going to be able to do with it. 
Let's turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. I don't preach a whole lot in the book of Numbers. This is one of my favorite stories in Scripture that I don't believe I've ever gotten to preach on before. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I'm going to get to talk about two guys who, who I love in Scripture and who I also love in modern life because we're going to talk today about Caleb and Joshua. Joshua and Caleb, and if you don't know, we, we got a guitar player slash singer named Joshua and a bass player slash guitar player named Caleb, and man, they're, they're two of my favorite people. They're awesome people, and so I, I, get, I told them today, I said, I, you know, I'm going to let you guys come up here and preach my message, and I was kidding. I'm not. I like being the center of attention too much. Just kidding, but I'm not going to put them on the spot like that, but we're going to talk about Joshua and Caleb, and, and we're going to talk uh, about something that happens 40 years before what we discussed last week. Last week we looked how Joshua was taking the leadership role from Moses. Moses has passed away and they're on the edge of the promised land and God speaks to Joshua and he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid because the Lord your God is with you. And he gives him this great command and, and now we're going back 40 years before that. So, so we're going back to, to, to the point where the Israelites first came to the promised land. See, at this point in time, Moses is, is their leader. He's brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and God has shown himself strong in so many ways. He sent ten plagues against the Egyptians. He's parted the Red Sea to bring them out. He, he, he's led them by a pillar by, of smoke by day, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. His presence is constantly with them. He feeds them with manna from heaven, with quail. He, he provides water for them from a rock. He's shown his power time after time after time after time, and yet we get to the edge of the promised land, and for some reason there's some people who struggle to trust the goodness of God. Let's pick it up in Numbers chapter 13, starting at verse 17. Verse 17 says, when Moses sent them, excuse me, who's them? So Moses, God's told Moses to select some spies. We're at the edge of the promised land. I want you to send some people in to check this place out. So Moses selects 12 spies. It says, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So he gives them a whole checklist. I want you to check all this stuff out. I want you to look at all these things. I want you to evaluate the towns. I want you to evaluate the, the, the soil, the land, the crops. I want you to see everything you can and come back and tell us about it. But then he says at the end, he says, bring back some of the crops, right? Bring back some of the fruit of the land. Why? In other words, he's saying, I want you to give the people a sneak peek. I want them to see. You're, I'm only sending 12 of you in. We got a million people, or some Bible scholars say even 4 million people camped outside the promised land. We got a whole lot of people who are going in. I want them to see what they're about to take hold of. I want them to get a taste. I want them to get a touch of what you guys are going to get to experience for yourselves. It's supposed to be a land flowing of milk and honey. None of them had ever been there. Moses had never been there. So bring it back to us and tell us what it is actually like. Notice what Moses did not tell them to investigate. He told them to investigate a lot. He gave them a whole list of things to look at. You know what he didn't tell them to do? He didn't tell them to evaluate the strength of the enemy relative to their strength. He, he told them to take stock of their situation, but he didn't tell them to size up themselves. You see, the mistake that we so often make is when we try to size up ourselves, we don't look at ourselves the way God looks at us. My wife just taught the next steps, which we're now calling discovery. She just taught it this morning. Uh, and, and discovery, and what they talked about is how we got to begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us. Thank you, Teresa. Come on. So, so, so it's crucial for us to see ourselves the way God sees us, but so often we don't. 
So when we size up ourselves, we look at our weakness, we look at our past, we look at our struggles and our junk, and then we look at our situation. We say, man, this situation is, is too difficult. It's too big. Now, now we should size up the situation. Uh, man, in other words, like if, if you like bacon muffins, uh, it's not enough to just like bacon muffins and say, I'm going to go open a muffin business. I'm going to open a bakery. You better know something about business. You, you better know something about location. You better have some investors or have something. You can't just be like, hey, I'm going to be brave and open this business. And, and, man, your bravery might just lead to you being broke. Right? So, so we've got to size up the situation, but we don't have to size up ourselves in comparison to the enemy, in comparison to the challenge. Moses told them to size up the situation. He never said to size up themselves. In, in God's word, it, it tells us time and time again to magnify him in worship. Now, let me ask you this. When, when you worship God, does it make God bigger? No, right? Okay, not a trick question. You guys are smarter than first service. First service really struggled with that one. Uh, so <laughs> they were like, Sure, so congratulations. No, you don't make God bigger. God's as big as he's ever going to be, right? You can't make God bigger. You can't make him smaller. You can't affect him. What is, so why does worship magnify him? It brings him closer so you can see him for the size he really is. In fact, really what it does is it brings you closer to him, not him closer to you. But now you can, you can look at him and have a perspective of, oh, man, that's who he really is. That's what worship does. That's why we don't just, man, like to show off, hey, we got some people who can play some instruments. Let's play some song, man. We, we take time at the beginning of service to magnify him. Why? Because before we open the word of God, I want you to see him for who he really is. Because if you don't see him for who he really is, then what I do is a waste of time. Because there ain't nothing special about me. The power's in his word and in his presence. And so we've got to magnify him. We've got to see who he really is before we face the things that we're going to face in life, size up your situation, but be very, very careful about sizing up yourself because you will look at yourself the wrong way. And I believe it's the purport that you believe that determines the future that you experience. And I want to show it to you through the experience of the Israelites. Numbers chapter 13, moving down to verse 21, says, So they went up, they being the 12 spies, and they explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman and Shishay and Talmay and Pokemon and all these other people, <laughs> the descendants of Anak lived. Sometimes you just got to have fun, right? Like all these names in scripture that you're like, I have no idea what that means or who that is. Like, just, just enjoy it. Uh, when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Listen to this. One branch with some grapes on it. They carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and some figs. That's a big branch of, that's some big grapes, right? Like, th those aren't your Walmart grapes. That's not your Kroger grapes. Those are grapes that I have not seen, I have not experienced it, I have not tasted. This is the promised land. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. And they go in, and they're blown away. Oh, my gosh. They didn't have grapes like this in Egypt. We didn't eat grapes like this as we came across the desert. This is something that we've never seen before, and so they bring back this cluster of grapes, these pomegranates, these figs. Verse 24, so that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So they went in for 40 days and looked around. They, they went through that whole checklist that Moses gave them, and they came back with some fruit just as they were supposed to. And as far as we know, as far as any indication in Scripture, it was a good trip. The Bible does not tell us anything that went wrong doesn't tell us that they were ambushed, doesn't tell us they were attacked, doesn't tell us somebody got sick. As far as we know, those 40 days were good days. They accomplished all they were supposed to. They enjoyed the fruits of the land as they were there. They were not seen. They were not harmed. They were not attacked. 
Verse 26 says, They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, on the edge of the promised land. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. So far, so good. Twelve spies come back and say, look at these blessings. God did not overrate the promised land. The promise is not just as good as he told us. The promise is actually better than I thought it would be. God did not oversell it. Man, heaven is not oversold, by the way. It's going to be better than you imagine. It's going to be greater than you can conceive. God does not overhype things. God is not in the hype business. His promise is always true, and many times, and then some. And in this case, it was and then some. So they come back. Here's the proof of God's promise. The grapes represent the reality. This is what God is giving them. But their next statement represents their perspective of that reality. Here's what I want you to write down. Your experience determines, or excuse me, you experience your perspective. You experience your perspective. Your perspective determines your experience. What is your perspective? That's what you're going to end up experiencing. I'm going to show you that in this story. We, we don't actually experience our reality. In other words, we don't experience the things that happen to us. We experience our perspective of our reality. That's where we get our feelings from, our emotions from. That's what our experience is based in. You, you can be carrying mammoth grapes on your shoulder at the edge of the promised land, but refuse to go in because you're afraid of some giants. You don't have to experience what God has for you if you don't want to. If your perspective tells you differently, you'll experience your perspective and not God's promise. Verse 27, it says, they gave Moses this account. The story shifts in verse 27. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. God's promise is true. But, you knew a but was coming. Verse 21, 28, excuse me, but the people who live there are powerful. The promise is true. The promised land is everything we thought it would be and more, but the enemy is powerful. The enemy is strong. It's their perspective. They experience their perspective, not their reality. Now, don't you think it sounds a little bit strange to an all-powerful God when we start telling him how powerful our problems are? Don't you think it sounds a little ridiculous, a little funny to him when we start listing all the things that are wrong and all the reasons why we can't walk out his call on our life, all the reasons why we can't obey his word, all the reasons why, well, it may work for somebody else, God, but I can't do that because this, this, and this is just too strong in my life. It's too big in my life. It's too powerful in my life. And he's sitting up there saying, I'm all powerful. How big am I in your life? Sad, it's scary. We do it all the time. We're moving on to 28. It says, and this, the people are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Anak was a giant that we found in the book of Genesis before Goliath. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. So they start lifting off, listing off all the enemies, all the reasons why they can't fulfill the command and walk out the promise of God. And then we have another transition in the story. I love verse 30. It says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses. Here's what I found out this morning. I haven't even had time to research and find out if this is true, so I might be making it up. But Caleb says it's true. Caleb says the, the word Caleb literally means brave. Then the brave one silenced the crowd and said, I don't even know if it's true. I'm preaching it. Uh, we're just going to believe it today. I'm going to be brave and step out. The brave one silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can. Certainly do it. Joshua and Caleb had the same reality as the ten other spies. 
doesn't say that they went to a different part of the land. doesn't say that they experienced smaller enemies, and that's why they were confident. doesn't say that they had bigger grapes. They had the same reality. They had a different perspective. They believed a different report. They said, we can, so we should. The other said, we can't, so we shouldn't. The enemy is too big. The crazy thing is they experienced their perspective. It took them a long time. 40 years. But you know what Joshua and Caleb ended up doing? They walked into that promised land. And God gave them land. They built a home. They built a family there. The only two of the 12 spies who ever did. You see, the other 10 experienced their perspective as well. They said, we can't. And guess what? They didn't. Joshua and Caleb said they can. And they did. Henry Ford famously said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Joshua and Caleb proved him right. He didn't know it probably that it was a scriptural truth that he was sharing, but it's true. You see, you you experience your perspective. How many of us say, well, I would if I could. Man, I would serve if, if I had the time. I would give if I had the money. Man, I would share the gospel if I knew the things to say. I would, God, if I could. And God's looking at you saying, if you could, or excuse me, if you did, then you would. If you would step out, if you would do it, you would have the ability. You could if you would, not just you would if you could. See, we've got to step out and trust what he's calling us to is always going to be something we're capable of. Verse 31 says, but the men who had gone up with him, up with Caleb, said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Wait, wait, Wait just a second there, Mr. Investigative Reporter. He didn't ask you that. God didn't ask you. Moses didn't ask you. No, nowhere in the text do we find an evaluation is requested. We'll compare our strength to their strength. He just said, tell us what they're like. Tell us what we're about to walk into. Let's be prepared for what God is taking us to. That's why he sent the spies in. He didn't send the spies in to come back with an evaluation of their relative strengths. When you start weighing yourself rather than weighing God's word and God's promise, you'll always shrink back. you always say, I can't. When God says you can. Verse 32, it says, and they spread among the the Israelites a bad report. So not only did the 10 come back with a bad report for Moses, now they went out and started telling everybody else, we ain't going in there. You don't need to do this. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. We need to run. We need to go the other way. God's promised land is not for us. Maybe it's for another people. Maybe it's for another time, but this ain't the time. And this ain't the place. We can't do it. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size. Now again, here's what's interesting. As far as we know, they did not have anything to have bad news about. Doesn't say that 12 of them went in, but only six of them came back. Doesn't say that one of them was, was held captive for a time and they were barely able to rescue him. Doesn't say that somebody got sick. Doesn't say that, that somebody ran into a bear or a lion who devoured them. We don't have any bad news in this story. Nothing went wrong on their trip, but they still came back with a bad report. And you know, there are people who, who allow this to happen, and all of us do from time to time. You see, fear will turn good news into a bad report. You've seen this, haven't you? Somebody gets a promotion, like, man, congratulations, I'm so happy for you. Oh, man, all it means is now I'm going to be in a higher tax bracket, and Uncle Sam's going to take more of my money, right? Man, I'm going to have to work longer hours, and I'm not going to be able to see my family as much. And, and you're like, man, I'm not going to congratulate you anymore. 
Or, or you got that person that, man, you, you've never asked them how they're doing because last time you did, it took them two hours, and you were, like, late to where you were going. Like, I was just trying to be polite, and they went through everything that was going wrong in their life, right? Like, we, we, we're so good at turning good news into a bad report. And that's what fear does to us. What kind of report do you spread? It says the ten spies came back and they spread a bad report. I believe that as God's people, we can spread a good report. I believe when you go to your workplace, you have the ability to spread a good report in that place. I believe that when you go to your campus, when you go to your family, wherever place that God takes you, you have the capability of spreading a good report. In other words, that that you're going to have the ability to affect the atmosphere and the faith of those around you. That's why it's so important to surround yourself with people of faith, by the way. Because a bad report will spread, but so will a good report. It spreads. It's contagious. You see, there's enough bad news in the world. There's enough bad reports in the world. God's sending you to the world to bring the good report, to bring the good news. What I need, what City Church needs, what the kingdom of God needs is, is not somebody who can turn good news into a bad report. There's enough of those people out there. We're looking for, God is looking for the kind of believer the kind of faith-filled person who can turn a bad news into a good report. And I believe it can be done. See, let's make it clear. The news is not the report. The news is what happened. The report is what you make of what happened. It's your perspective of what happened. It's what you see and what happened. The news is the issue. The report is your interpretation of the issue. And I don't always have to have good news to have a good report. I want the kind of faith of Caleb, don't you? Don't you want the kind of, kind of faith that you bring back a good report when everybody else brings back a bad report? That you step up and, and spread a good report among the people? I want to be the one who says, yeah, the giants may be big, but have you seen the grapes? And the giants may be big, but have you seen my God? My God is bigger, and he is greater. And if he's telling me to go in, I'm going in. Remember Psalm 112, which we read towards the beginning of the message? Maybe you were thinking on your grocery list or, or half asleep. We're, we're going to read it again just to make it fresh for you. It says of the righteous, they will have no fear of bad news. Oh, what a statement. Here's what I wish it said, though. I wish it said the righteous will have no bad news. Now, sometimes I think we can be guilty of presenting this kind of plastic, like, happy all the time Christianity. Man, you become a Christian and nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. And that ain't real life. See, Psalm 112 does not promise me I will have no bad news. It doesn't say the righteous will never have anything go wrong. It says the righteous will have no fear of bad news. In other words, the righteous understand that that, that the promise of God is that he is working all things together for my good. So even in the midst of the bad news, even in the midst of the struggle, even in the midst of of the bad report from the doctor, even in the midst of, of getting a bad phone call, even in the midst of having a bad conversation with the boss, that God's got a plan beyond this situation. God's gone before me into this situation and God's up to something. The righteous will have no fear of bad news. We're not going to let bad news throttle us and hold us back. Here's what I didn't tell you earlier about the Daily Courier article on me in high school. And I didn't even realize this at the time. It wasn't until much later in life that, that I realized this. But when I was at Church on the Move in Tulsa, I got to spend one year as our, as our 
staff reporter for our church website. It was a mega church, and we had a lot of stuff going on and activities and events, and, and I got to spend one year, and all I did was, man, if kids, if our kids' department had an event, I went and I wrote an article about the event, took pictures. If our youth ministry had an event, I went to the event, took pictures, did interviews. If I, I like, featured different volunteers from the church, we called it Volunteer Spotlight, and they got to be, have their moment in the sun, and, and, and I even went on the senior ministry events. I, I went to Branson, Missouri with our senior ministry. I was like 24 years old and had a blast. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, and, and so I got to do all this cool stuff, and it was such a cool year of my life. And, but here's what I found out as a reporter. Most of the time as a reporter, you already have the story written before you have the actual events and facts to put down. I already knew what I was going to say. Man, unless it went completely opposite of what I expected, I knew, it. man, here's how this report is going to look. Here's, what we're gonna talk, here's the things that we're going to feature. We're going to talk about how many people got saved. We're going to talk about how many people got baptized. We're, we're going to talk about how many people showed up or, or man, what, what happened in this event. And already had like 90% of the article written before the event ever happened. You see the guy at the Daily Courier? He already had the article written before he ever interviewed me. I'm going to have somebody who's, who's a man in a serious field, who, and we're going to feature, man, here's a student who's, man, they're going after their career. And then I'm going to find somebody who's having fun and just not real serious about it, and we're going to feature him. You see, that's why I didn't get in there about ministry. That's why I didn't get in there about Bible college, because it didn't line up with the story that was already written. Here's what I want you to know, church. Your story is already written. Jesus has already gone before you into your situation. He already knows how he's seeing you through this struggle. He already knows how this bad news works together for your good. And you can have faith that it's already written. Why do we have no fear of bad news? Not because no bad news will ever come, but because we serve a good God who's already gone before us into our bad news. So we don't have to be afraid of it. We're just saying, I will not fear the war. I will not fear the storm. Why? Because my help is on the way. Because my God is already up to something. That's why the righteous have no fear of bad news. Because it's already written. We can believe a good report. So the 12 spies and the rest of the nation of Israel wandered through the desert for 40 years because they refused to go in and take hold of the land. I used to think that was so cruel. I used to think that was so cruel of God. Man, they made one mistake, and they got to wander for 40 years. Now, the truth is they made many, many mistakes if you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. But, but that's not even it. I don't think that God had them wander in the desert for 40 years to punish them because he was mad at them. I think he had them wander in the wilderness because he said, if you don't have the faith to go into the promised land, it would be cruel of me to send you in there because you would be afraid the whole time you were there. If you don't have the faith to trust me that I'm for you in the midst of this, then it would be cruel. It would be, it would be messed up. It would be torture to send you into the promised land, a place that you fear. So you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until all of you that don't have the faith move on to be with your fathers. That was a really nice way of saying die. And a new generation came up, a faith generation came up, and now God said, now you can go in to the promised land. So we get to Numbers chapter 33, and they're again at the edge of the promised land. They've wandered in the desert. Many of them have passed away, and now the time has come. And listen to what God says. He says, take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Not I will give. Past tense. I have given you. Why? Because he already gave it to them. 
He gave it to him 40 years ago when he promised it. In fact, he gave it to him 500 years ago when he first promised it to Abraham. And then he promised him the next generation to Isaac. And then he promised it again to Jacob. And on down through the generations, God kept promising this. In fact, the promise of God for the promised land pops up 170 times before we hit Numbers chapter 13. 170 times God has said, this is your land. I am giving you this land. You're going to go in and take this land, and I have this land for you. 170 times he put, man, one more level of confidence, one more reminder, one more time that I know you need to hear it again. And 170 promises wasn't enough to overcome the perspective of a bad report. See, it doesn't matter how many great things that the Bible says if you don't believe them. They're not going to bless you. It doesn't matter how many incredible promises God makes for your life, for the amazing plan he wants to unfold for you, the purpose he wants you to fulfill. If you don't put your faith in what he's telling you, if you don't place your faith in his word, it's not going to make a difference for you. We can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, the call of Moses. Moses is standing at the burning bush, and listen to this. It says, so I've come down to rescue them. God says, I've heard the cries of my people. I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, mosquito bites, and cellulites, and all the other ites, right? All those enemies that they'd end up running into in Numbers chapter 13, God knew they were there in Exodus chapter 3. Why? Because he went before them. Because it's already written. Because he already knew what his plan was. He already knew how he wanted to deliver them. He already knew how they were ordained to take the land that he promised them. Yet they weren't ready. They weren't ready. Last scripture for you today in this story. Fast forward again to Joshua. As they're getting ready to go in and take the land. Joshua chapter 2 verse 1. I want to show you one principle here. We see a very similar situation as we saw in Numbers 13, 17. They're, they're at the edge of the promised land and Joshua is about to send in spies. It said, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. you got to be careful how you pronounce that one when you read it out loud. He said, go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Joshua did two things differently than Moses did. Forty years Joshua wandered because of the mistakes of the ten other spies. Forty years of his life. You see, even though Joshua still walked in the promise, don't think that that, that being around people of a bad report didn't cost him something. We've got to be careful who we surround ourselves with. But Joshua learned from the mistakes of the previous generation, and so he does two things differently. Number one, he doesn't give them a whole big old list. He doesn't give them a big checklist. Go check this and check this and check this and check this and check this. He says, go look at Jericho because that's the first stop on our world tour. That's the first stop as we go into the promised land. I want you to spy out Jericho. Sometimes... We, we can get overwhelmed by the bigness of God's plan for our life. This is why I don't think that we know, like, when we're three years old, what the purpose of our life is. Right? This, this is why you don't know your calling fully when you're 15. And, and some of us, man, we might be 70. And we still don't know the fullness of our calling. Why? Because if we knew it all, we'd run the other way. Scare the daylights out of us if we knew the ways that God wanted to use us. So God sometimes just gives us one step at a time. That's why the book of Psalms says that your word is a light to my way and a lamp unto my feet. Right? What's a lamp to your feet do? Man, you don't see 300 feet in front of you with a lamp to your feet. You might see three or four feet. What do you see? You see the next step. So Joshua said, we're just going to take the next step. We're going to go scout out Jericho, and we're going to walk that step out, and then we'll worry about the step after that. We're not going to get overwhelmed by the bigness uh, of what we're trying to do. 
But he did something else differently too, and I think it's really interesting. Did you notice that at the beginning of that verse, how many spies did Joshua send? He sent two. How many spies came back with a good report? Two. Bible doesn't tell us, and so I'm reading into this, and you can throw this away if you want to, because this isn't the Bible. This is just Pastor Troy's opinion. I think Joshua sent two spies because he said that's all we needed the first time. We don't need 12 spies. We need two. We need two of a good report. In other words, sometimes the reason why we believe so many bad reports is we listen to too many voices. And maybe you need to narrow down the voices that you listen to, to the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Instead of listening to all the voices of the world, instead of listening to all the stuff that's coming at you, all the bad news on TV and social media and all that stuff, sometimes we just need to focus down and just listen to a couple key voices, a couple strategic voices, a couple voices that we know will speak truth and speak faith into our lives. It's already written. See, I think this is why Jesus was able to endure what he endured. Jesus hung on a cross for you and for me, and he made these seven statements. And, and one of those statements that I, that I always found interesting, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And I always thought he was saying they don't know what they're doing. In other words, they don't know that they're killing the Son of God. And I think there's, that's, that's true. I think they had no idea who the, whose life they were taking. They just thought they were, they were fulfilling the orders of Pilate, who, who was doing what the religious leaders of the Jews wanted them to do. But I think there's more to it than that. When Jesus says they don't know what they're doing, Jesus realized it was already written. In other words, everybody around him thought they're killing him. And Jesus realized, I'm giving up my life. I'm laying it down. And so when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He's saying, this had to happen. Somebody had to do it. It was already written. This was foreshadowed from the foundations of the world. I was going to come and die. And yeah, they're the ones that had to take my life. But forgive them, because this thing was already written. They had nothing to do with it. And if we could have it, it's already written faith. How much less would we worry about the person who cut us off in traffic? How much less would we sweat the way that our boss talks to us or our coworker talks about us? How much less would we get concerned with that if we could say, you know what, it's already written. God already saw this, and he already worked it for my good, and he's got a plan, so I'm going to believe a good report. Man, when I was a kid, I grew, I grew up Pentecostal, and we grew up, we sang a song and said, whose report will you believe? We will believe the report of the Lord. Why? Because his report says I am healed. His report says I am healed. His report says I am free. His report says victory. That's the report we're going to believe, church. That's the report he has for us. It's a good report. Amen? Amen. It's already written. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you.